You don't see it, do you? How close we are to absolute chaos? The sick ones are sitting on their fat masses, eating and drink themselves into a stupor, polluting the world without a second thought while it goes down the toilet. Nobody wants to do the nasty work. You know, the shit that we all just think about. Most good citizens are just along for the ride and then bitch and moan and complain about everything when it doesn't work out. Not me. Get it done. Revolution Radio, where we do the nasty work. www.freedomslips.com Thank you for tuning in to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. If you plan to call in and speak with one of our hosts, please turn down your radio and separate yourself from any background noise and wait for the area code to be called on before you speak. And don't forget, Revolution Radio freedomslips.com is listener supported. So stop by the homepage freedomslips.com, visit the site support area to help support the host you're listening to's airtime. Thank you. Revolution Radio freedomslips.com where the truth never sleeps. We're in a narco-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a civil majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more... Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Look, you stupid bastard. You've got no arms left. Yes, I have. Look. Just a flesh wound. I don't believe I've seen such a display of courage, skill, nerve, grace. I'll do you for that. Oh, what? Come here. What are you going to do? Bleed on me? I'm invincible. You're a loony. The Black Knight always triumphs. Welcome one, welcome all. And it is that time for Roundtable Live here at RevolutionRadioFreedomSlips.com. Be rolling on until 4 a.m. in the morning Eastern time. New ideas, different hosts every night, different subjects every night. You never know what's going to happen right here at the Round Table Live. King Arthur has nothing on us. We're going round and round. All right, here we go. Uh, welcome to Free Association Roundtable, a new show here on Revolution Radio. And uh, it's just, it's a casual, casual kind of talk about anything kind of show. Uh, I've invited a few people and one of them's actually turned up. Uh, are you around, Joe? Are you here? Yes, I'm here. All right, cool. Um, I haven't got a topic really at the moment, but uh, I wanted to talk at some point about the uh, the Pandora Papers. Do you know anything about the Pandora Papers? Uh, you know the, the the big investigative thing about um, money laundering and people buying property through companies in the Cayman Islands and what have you. 
Okay. Not that I know anything about it. I was just looking at the BBC earlier on, and it seems to be a big part of what they're doing at the moment. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's either a big deal or not a big deal, depending on your point of view. If you're the person buying the property, then doing it through the British Virgin Islands is is just normal standard practice if you've got that kind of money. But to me, it's a bit strange. Uh, any thoughts? Well, lots of strange things happen in the world. The world is about strangeness. People seek any opportunity and jump. Uh, later comes reflection. Uh, but opportunity beckons and people will uh, try to make a quick buck. And why not? And uh, modern economy is open for such things. And sometimes it takes up to decades for us all to, uh, you know, get sober or have a hangover or realize that to follow our impulse or our feelings or our, uh, you know, response to opportunity may actually be a trap, uh, perhaps for all, perhaps for some. Uh, but uh, what else is new then? Yeah, it's it's been going on forever. Uh, it's, the way, it's kind of the way the world is. And it's difficult to, I mean, you've got to kind of come to terms with that at some point. Otherwise, you just end up, I just end up banging my head against the wall. So I don't have to like it, though, necessarily. Yes, I uh, always detect uh, depth uh, behind surface, if you like. And um, humans have curiosity and have uh, a deep yearning uh, to uh, connect or to encounter or to discover or to uh, perhaps return or, or call it what you like to the world. The world is out there as presented or represented to us. Yeah, you can't avoid it, so you might as well kind of get used to it. I mean, there's certain things you can change, but there's quite there's a lot of things you can't that I can't change. There's a lot of things I can change about myself, but not very much I can change about anybody else. Yes, yes. And perhaps the question is why change? Um, uh, I mean, change is, if you like, uh, embedded in experience. One would hope that we learn and we sort of don't repeat the same mistake, uh, perhaps not once, but twice or three times, and eventually we change. Change, like everything else I argue, is natural, and there is no need to superimpose it on us. Um, so uh, people do what they do and essentially it enters a, a process of engagement within which, arguably and only within which, change is actually for the better. And uh, process is what happens once we, if you like, buy property, to follow your example. Uh, I don't, uh, but some of my best friends do. Uh, my ex-wife does uh, 
People do buy property and properties, and it's a hot market. And if they can get their hands on finance, uh, either by betting on the future or by tenants or by a Ponzi scheme or, or, or pyramid or whatever works, works, and people do, I, I refrain because then you have to deal with all these things. Once you've got things, you have to manage. Uh, I, I can't really, that, that bothers me, not any other aspect. Uh, but people do, people have enormous, to me, uh, uh, unused energy, pent up energy that modern world does not uh, make use of. So people have uh, extra excess energy, they will tear, not necessarily for profit, not necessarily for self-gain, but simply for expend, expending the energy on something that, that will, you know, stimulate them or, or become um, attractive enough and in the process they meet other people. and. So I don't don't judge it or don't look at it as yeah it can it can I, I look at it for the big picture so it can bring ruin people can in the end fail colossally and perhaps society at large could uh, uh, perhaps uh, be hurt by it but I would like to believe that the maximization of pleasure or the minimization of hurt is not the purpose of life. It is the purpose, uh, arguably, of econ economics. It is the purpose, perhaps, of politics. It is perhaps the way some people, perhaps the majority of people, live their lives. But I, I think a degree of risk and a degree of Adventure, adventurism, not adventurism, but adventure, and a degree of, of uh, if you like, betting on things is, is okay. Um, it's not that I judge it to be okay, but I judge it, I judge it to be within the imagination and, and as I said, uh, so much energy pent up in human beings that society, for all sorts of reasons, don't allow or don't, or don't approve or, or curtails. And so it comes out through such big, big schemes, if you like. And it's good. It's, if you like, it's a safety valve through which energy that otherwise is not uh, uh, conducive to, to, to society gets uh, used and perhaps it's necessary because we all have got lots of energy. Yeah, so you're saying when <clears throat> when people get angry or frustrated or, or have something they can't express, they'll, <clears throat> they'll use that energy in the property market or wherever, turns into an arts project or something. Yes, yes. If anything, uh, there aren't enough such, uh, um, what, what shall I call it, uh, opportunities or enough outlets for energy to be used. If anything, we fail, all of us, to provide enough to 
ignite or to attract or to, you know, make people feel that the energy is, uh, you know, utilized in the first place, but appreciated and joined up with other people's energy. And instead, people apply uh, morality or, or ethics, which I understand. I understand the need for it for social stability, as some of my colleagues uh, like so much. And I'm not saying I like instability, but I am suspicious of this stability above all. Uh, a degree of instability or a degree of uh, unknowing the future or a degree of, uh, you know, adventurism is not bad. Yes, there is a price to pay, but there is a price to pay for anything and everything. What is more profound is the human spirit or the human uh, essence or the human uh, need to live and in the process of living to grow and in the process of growing to discover ever discover more and more area unexpressed areas and it's not the privilege of artists or privilege of creative types it's the privilege of us all to create and and to add to our experience, to our lives, to our relationships with other people, to our sense of self. And um, the more the, the merrier, the more the better. There is no really limit. I mean, people will find their limits and some people will have more energy than others, but it's okay. That's for them to decide. But for us as, as audience or as the public, I think we need to encourage all people to, um, uh, you know, um, take part. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you're right, Joe. There's a there's a lot of lot of frustration and a lot of anger around at the moment. So I'm guessing at some point the the pandemic will turn into a huge wave of creativity, whether that's in technology or whether it's in uh, the arts or whether it's in theater or whatever it is uh, because people are going to have to find an outlet for all of that frustration and anger yes yes there is too much frustration and anger in the world uh, and and to me that is the problem not the problem of things happening but the problem of things not happening in other words we, ourselves, and others, and society at large, curtail and limit and channel and decide uh, big chunks of life are not to be expressed because of whatever, tradition, habit, morality, identity, likes, dislikes, and a bigger problem than, I repeat, than things happening is that Oh, did I lose you? Joel, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. I, I'm sorry, from time to time people ring me and I have to decline them, but I uh, 
pledge my loyalty to you over all these phone calls. All right, cool. That's fine. You just yeah, do what you need to do, Joel. I'll fill I'll I'll fill in with a bit of rambling while you're on, on a phone call or whatever. You mean is it okay if I go on a phone call for two minutes, yes? Yeah, that's fine. No problem at all. Okay, I'll do that for a second. Okay. Yeah, you, you you'll you'll need to mute or whatever while you're doing it though. Okay, I feel like I'm back online now, but I don't know for sure. Looks like I am. Uh, let's just see what's going on. <laughs> we've got we've got quarter of an hour out of it, so we're doing all right. Joel's still here. Yeah, it looks like I'm still on. So uh, let's have a look at the, the BBC and see what the BBC's got to say about the Pandora Papers. I was just looking at this before I came on air. I should probably gone into this a little bit before we got into the conversation, but never mind. Whatever order it happens in is whatever order it happens in. So this is from the BBC, but it's a investigative collaboration with 160 other journalists. And just talk about what the Pandora Papers is. It's a it's a leak of 12 million files that expose the secret wealth and offshore dealings of the rich and powerful, according to the BBC. And as I said, they're, they're focusing on property deals today. So there's a big, big article and there's some Q&A going to go, go on this afternoon, UK time. So but uh, somebody from the investigation team at Panorama and somebody from the uh, International Journalists Consortium, I can't remember the name of, off the top of my head, answering questions. I think it was icij.org is where I found it last night. So there's a whole lot of uh, sub-articles and subsections on here. Secret owners hold UK property worth billions. Qatari royals avoided 18.5 million tax on supermansion. World leaders deny wrongdoing after Pandora leaks. Questions over Lubov Chernukshin's Tory donations. Um, so there's all sorts of questions to be answered. Russian with Tory links made millions from, in inverted commas, fraud. Tory donor Amersi, Amersi, uh, I think that's how you say it, involved in corruption scandal. Uh, 
King of Jordan amassed 70 million secret property empire. Blair saved £312,000 stamp duty on property deal. That was via the British Virgin Islands, I think. And the Kenyan president's done some deals. So there's all sorts of people, very senior people in government involved in uh, offshore trusts and what have you. Most of which isn't illegal. Well, I imagine that all of it isn't illegal. It's more a question of whether it's whether it's moral to to spend fifteen million on a on a property or while you're in the process of uh, winding up your company and uh, raiding pension funds in the process. So it's a bit it's a bit of a question whether that's morally morally acceptable or not. Let me see if Joel's back online or not. So this is going to be a weekly round table and hopefully we'll get three or four people involved over the next few weeks. It's the first one, so it's, it just is what it is. It could be one, two, three people. I've invited five, but people have got commitments, so they're, they're away on holiday or they've got uh, other things going on because it was quite short notice. So the idea came up at the middle of September, the 21st of September, to do a, a round table. And... Uh, I decided it was a good idea because it came up on my birthday. So I started looking into it. The, the slot seemed to be available. So I've arranged with management to have this slot weekly from now on. And uh, I've got uh, Joel. Joel is a clinical psychologist who I've known for a few years, about six years now. And I met him through the um, Philosophy Society here in Newcastle. He was on the board of, board of trustees for the Philosophy Society. And we, we get on most of the time. It can be quite challenging, it has to be said, but we get on most of the time. And he's got some good ideas. He's got an interesting way of looking at the world. So I thought uh, he'd be a good person to have on a, a round table to set, share some of his perspectives. I invited an artist friend of mine as well. And I put a, a guy I knew about 15 years ago, who was a management consultant, uh, kind of interested in community building and the dynamics of community building. So I've invited him on, uh, but I think he's in the States at the moment. So it's about four o'clock in the morning. I wasn't really expecting him to show up, but he might show up at some point now and again. So there's a few people on the list, and it just depends who's available, obviously. Uh, 
I'm not going to make it a news roundtable, but we'll, we'll obviously we get into issues via the news some of the time. So it's just a matter of digging in and finding out what the what the underlying issue is, and then we'll have a conversation about, about that. Right, I'm thinking I should put a video on because Joel's obviously involved in the phone call. So let me see if I can find a, a good transhumanism video. I've got a an underlying theme for the Saturday show that I do at the moment, which is eugenics, and that's kind of turned into transhumanism. So I'm looking at uh, various aspects of eugenics and the history, mainly the history of eugenics on Saturdays from a cultural point of view and from the point of view of the eugenics society and uh, the various conferences that, that went on. So I need to find something short, really. Let's see how long this one is. No, that's an hour. That's probably too long. Right, so let's go with what is transhumanism. Share my screen. And here we go. This is uh, Albert Lynn from the Storytellers Summit in 2019. About 12 minutes, this one. I should give Joel time. So uh, when Caitlin asked me to, to speak about transhumanism, I have to admit, the first thing I did was say, yes, I'm, I'd be super honored. It'd be incredible. And then I went straight to Google and figured out what transhumanism meant. <laughs> uh, this is what I found. The transformation of the human condition through technologies that enhance human intellect and physiology. I added the last part, the human frontier. Right. To me, the big question is, how do we define technology? You know, what is that? I've had the honor of traveling around the world over the last decade with explorers and doing my research, working with the National Geographic Channel as well, going to places like the Holy Lands. I was here just a couple of weeks ago in Jordan, where the Earth's crust is literally ripping itself apart. It's in a place where the three monotheistic religions of our world were born. I spent time, a lot of time lately, in the jungles of Guatemala, in the caves of Mexico, looking face to face with the history of ours, ours, that seems yet so alien, a people that understood the concept of time differently than we did. I've traveled through the lands of Asia, China, Mongolia, and other places, looking at 
the wonder, the ability of the human mind to imagine entire worlds and then turn them into reality. And all through that time, I've found that these artifacts, these technologies, maybe, of us, they're these mirrors of who we are, maybe where we're going. It, it kind of dawned on me. That the, the question I kept on feeling was, is it that the technologies create us, maybe, as much as we create them? They lead us into these new ideas of who we are? You know, through this whole process over the last decade, things got really personal for me on this, this transformation quest, this quest to understand the human condition. I ended up, uh, as many of you know, two years ago, uh, lying in the dirt, crushed under the weight of a vehicle. Blood pumping through my my skull as I, I looked down and I, and I saw that I had I had been transformed. It was the moment of my death and my rebirth. Now some would say it's tragic, but it's not all bad. There's a lot of perks. For example, I will forever have the best Halloween costume for the rest of my life. <laughs> ha ha! Like nailed it. But thanks to technology, I've been able to move on, to get around, to, to live a life that's full, to have mobility, to, to be anything I want to be. And I, and I realized that I joined a community of 40 million other amputees in the world. 40 million. And as I walked through the world, I realized that many of those, in fact, 95% of those people remain without prosthetics because it's incredibly hard to make. You spend months shaping the, the part of your body just right so that it fits exactly right. So one project I've been working on has been thinking about how do we transform that? How do we change that game? We took technologies you know, that Aaron was talking about earlier, things like photogrammetry, structure from light, and we've started coming up with ideas of how we could use cell phones to be able to map human bodies so that we could turn plastics, maybe wasted plastics, into something that could transform the lives of millions, giving them their lives back. We've just printed out our first couple of legs. It's cost us less than $10. But more importantly than that, you don't have to travel anywhere to get this thing made. You could just walk by somebody, you have a cell phone, and you can change their lives. But this is for a different time. I wanted to talk to you guys about something a little bit weirder. Hmm, what's going on there? Right after, right after I got into this new body, something really strange started happening. I started to feel intense pain in a part of my body that literally didn't exist anymore. I can tell you right now, I can feel my toes. I'm wiggling them. I'm not kidding. These questions, where does the body end and where does the mind begin? What is the mind? What is the body? You know, I started working with this neuroscientist. Some of you might know the name, V.S. Ramachandran. He discovered this thing called mirror therapy, where he could create a new story for my mind, a story that I could see and try to trick my brain into letting go of that pain. But every time he would remove the mirror, the pain would rush back. I needed more than the story alone. 
we started looking at all the other kinds of research that was being done in the world around this idea of remapping your brain, remapping your mind. Your mind has a map of the body, the same way your mind has a map of the world and your role in the world. And I had to remap my mind. We started looking at the, the technology that was being used in places like depression research. The cutting edge of depression research right now is psychedelics. Johns Hopkins is leading this huge study right now on the power of psilocybin. So we tried this, among other things. We looked for ways in which I could get to that psychedelic state, to that transit. We started thinking about meditation, about breathing, about yoga, kundalini yoga, which in ancient Sanskrit is written as, as a technology between mind and body. What really worked? Psilocybin. In a single moment, within 30 minutes, the pain was gone, gone forever. Ramachandran and I just published this case study, uh, and we're looking at doing clinical trials here. But it's not like this is just the only way. The, the, the psilocybin, this psychedelic state, that was a shortcut. And everywhere I've gone throughout my entire journey has shown me that that shortcut has existed in other forms to these hypnotic states, to these trance states, through all culture. Why do these guys spin around in circles until they enter a trance state. I don't know. I play a lot of music. Imagine that feeling that that violinist has right there in that moment. I went to India, to, to Varanasi, where I spent a week embedded with this gang of thieves, going into every temple I could find, beating the drums of these holy men until my hands bled. I spent a lot of time with music. I started thinking about it as a technologist, as an engineer. What can I do? Can I start measuring things like my heart rate variability, things like my EEG sensing, my, my body, what's happening to my body when I'm in these states of flow, in these states of transcendence? What is happening in those moments of transcendence that actually allows me to imagine a new reality and then hold it, to bend the spoon in my mind? We started playing around with other sensors. Can we start looking at those whirling dervishes and design experiments that measure their movement and then create these visual feedback loops so they can see these movements and start to feed off each other, pulling each other into these deeper states of flow, possibly. These dots are, are visualizations of their movements in real time with the added intensity of their EEGs. I only have five minutes and I went over already, but I want to... <laughs> Sorry, and there's beer outside. I'm like, I've been told many times, don't stop people from drinking. It's over there. You're stopping them by going over. Uh, but I want to end with one really important story, which is maybe the beginning of my journey. It all started with Genghis Khan for me, as many of you might know. Genghis Khan, a, a person who had nothing, and in a single moment, somehow transformed his understanding of his reality, of his mind, and created the largest human empire in human history. From what? How did he get to that state where he could reimagine a new reality? This is a really important story for me, because I think this is at the core of the human condition. How do we choose to imagine new realities in this moment of great imbalance? In the final expedition of that project, seven shamans showed up on the side of this mountain unexpectedly. It's in the middle of the most remote area I've ever been in in my life. And they asked to see me at sundown. I just want to take you there just to feel what they did 
because they took themselves into a trance. We met in front of this shrine. This is a recording I made in real time of their, of their drums. Feel those drums. What's happening there? Shaman stood over me, beating this drum over my head as I knelt on the ground. I've played these drums all over the world, this recording, places like Africa, where people came up to me afterwards and said, these sound like our drums. Why are there drums everywhere? Why is there that rhythm, our heartbeat, that exists in these different states, these rituals of transformation? The shaman stood over me as he beat this drum. And I knelt there, under him. He brought himself into this moment where he was literally going to become another identity. In his mind, he was going to take on the spirit of his ancestor. And as that drum beat faster, beat over my head, pulling us both into this immersive state, into this state that was so overwhelming that I had to lose my ego, an ego death moment, where literally in that moment, I lost myself to the heartbeat of this drum. And then all of a sudden, it climaxed in this massive explosion of sound, of energy, of noise, of movement. And then he fell. And he fell to the ground. And he sat there. He was no longer human. He twitched like a bird. And he started through these moments, trying to understand something, see something in my soul. I brought you to this feeling, to this moment of transcendence for me that was so powerful, because in this moment in time, we collectively must imagine Because I'm, I'm drying them. Drying. Drying the pads. Why don't you just do what you mean? Because. I you want breakfast? What shall I make for you? Chocolate spread, okay. Chocolate spread. Okay. Is it dry?
Okay, I'm back. It looks like my my laptop's doing technical things that it doesn't normally do, like shut down Firefox. But uh, seems like I'm back. <laughs> so let me get back in the chat room. And uh, I don't know where Jules just appeared to, but uh, I'm sure I'm sure he'll turn up again when he finishes his phone call. Dennis, I'm here. Yeah, you're here. Okay, excellent. I returned, I returned and you weren't there. Yeah, I got knocked off. I got knocked off. My laptop's doing strange things today. So in the inevitable technical issues with Skype, but uh, we'll manage. So <clears throat> I was playing, playing a, a video about transhumanism. So I've, I'm jumping around a little bit, but... Uh, uh, one of the questions he asked in the video was, uh, where, where does the body stop and the mind start? Which is a strange question for me, but uh, it's, it's not a bad question to ask, really. I think there's an assumption in there that the mind and body are separate. So it's interesting that he would ask it in that way. Well, um, of course, in... Uh, cl the classical period, there is, a, or if you like classical philosophy, there is a distinction between materialism and idealism, which puts the question in the same way, different metaphors, if you like, and distinguishes between that which can be observed or that which our senses reach. And that which require the mind uh, and uh, imagination uh, in order to make it more tangible to our everyday experience. And so where does the line uh, uh, pass? Where, where is it? It is in uh, what is immediately tangible and that which requires our mind in order to become tangible. And uh, human beings, because they are busy or because they are seduced by sensory experience, uh, tend to, uh, in the end, believe more or put their um, existence into that which is immediately, immediately tangible. And um, it is a pity because in the end, everything is tangible. Um, so, okay, so that's one way to look at it. Another, a bit more tricky, is to make an analogy with the distinction between appearance and substance or essence and place the body and all that people associate with it. Uh, it's better to say physicality in the realm of appearance. In other words, 
it is for all intents and purposes present. It's there. There is no doubt that it appears to us. We just need to open our eyes and reach out to touch. And there it is, uh, perfectly present in our lives. Whereas the other realm, as, as distinguished by classical philosophy, that is the mind, is not apparent or not easily apparent or not always apparent. Lies, as they say, behind or beyond. And it requires a bit of a leap that perhaps some people, perhaps the majority of people, will not make, at least not on a regular, habitual, persistent, sustained way to, you know, um, go beyond appearance and discover <clears throat> Something's going on. Are you still there, Jewel? He's Wi-Fi or gone or something. Um, so it's it's the first show and it's a Mercury retrograde and anything that can go wrong will go wrong, really. So I was expecting a lot of technical stuff today. Um, he'll work it out and, and restart or do what he needs to do in the end. So that yeah, that that mind body question is a is a key question in, in philosophy from the what sixteenth century onwards, from Rene Descartes onwards. There's been a separation, but the separation is for analysis, it's not actually there. And people forget that that the either the the, the body is an extension of the mind or the mind is is a an extension of the body or the mind is embodied and is and it's a simultaneous process it's, it's uh, several different ways to look at that particular situation yes um denny sorry jenny rang and she wonders if you can send her a list a, a link she wants to uh listen in yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put something in chat. We've got a break coming up at the, at the top of the hour, so I'll put something in in the other Skype chat so that she can listen. So what happens at 10 o'clock? Uh, we've got a three-minute break when they do some station announcements and stuff. Oh, I see. Well, you, you'll get used to it as we go along, but that's the only time really we've got a, an official break. I could put one in. At half past the hour, but but I said I said no when they asked me because I thought we if if we're talking and there's a break, it'll break the flow a little bit. Okay, so fine. Yes, I understand. Radio has its own. Um, yeah, it's just a matter of get getting it. If we've got so if we've got three or four people on, it'll flow a lot smoother than than just the two of us. But. Uh, Provided I don't get knocked knocked off the server every twenty minutes, which seems to be happening today. But uh, we'll we'll manage. So I'll I'll, I'll 
Actually, I might bring, if Jenny wants to talk, she can come in as a as a participant as well, if she wants to. There's no reason why not. Well, I hope she does. As you know, she tends to feel her way forever. Yeah, it would be good. It would be a good combination of people. So, I mean, if she wants to, I can bring her in, or, or she can just listen for a couple of weeks and then come in when she's ready. It's a it's a bit hit or miss at the minute because it's the first show, and I I was sitting watching transhumanism videos yesterday, which is not really relevant to this show, but it's relevant to my Saturday show. So I'm using the stuff that I was going to use on Saturday to fill in the gaps, which is all right. It just means we get to talk about the mind body problem and where the where the people end and machines start, and that sort of thing. Is that in the other show or is that in this show? No, we can do that in this one. There's no reason why not. I'm, it's just I'm, I was doing research, so I was watching a lot of transhumanism stuff yesterday. So we'll, we'll get cracking on the mind-body problem when we, when we come back after, after 10 o'clock. But I'll, I'll, I'll do a little bit of uh, housekeeping. So Revolution Radio's... Uh, listener supported station so mm -hmm. um we rely on donations so if you if anybody's around listening i know it's four o'clock in the morning five o'clock in the morning in the states now so it's a bit early but if there's anybody listening and you want to make a contribution then uh, the place to do that is freedomslips.com and there's a there's a tab at the top of the page for donations and there's a there's a merchandise store there so you can buy cups and T-shirts and all those types of things. Or you can set up a monthly donation or you can just do a one-off donation. And uh, that's that's how the station maintains itself. It pays for the bandwidth. It pays for the storage for the archives. The archives are free for the time being. So um, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of material in the archives. There's, there's a lot of different shows on here. There's about 90 people on here hosting shows. Two different studios. And the studios run, Studio A runs 24 hours a day and Studio B runs about between 12 and 18 hours a day. So it's a busy place and there's a lot, there's a lot of variety. Uh, there's political shows and there's entertainment shows and there's a combination of the two. There's, there's a, uh, shows that speculate and shows that are very uh, factual factual and everything in between so you you'll find something you love and something you hate on revolution radio but that's the way the world is and everybody has the right to have their own version of of how the world is all right joe i think i'm gonna what I'm going to do is just uh, close up. We've only got a minute left. So is there anything you want to say about about what we've been talking about so far in a, about a minute and a half? Well, I would hope um, that the in-between will emerge. Um, shows are plenty. I'm not uh, diminishing this show, the opposite. Uh, what's missing in this world, if you like, is 
an interaction between what perhaps is inevitable, uh, audience and uh, spectacle, as they call it. That meeting of, uh, as you put it, listeners and, and, and announcers or participants is vital and is fundamentally missing in this world. Uh, a show becomes ever more showy and spectators or, or listeners or, or, or whatever become ever more what they are. Right, we've got a break coming up, Joel, so just mute up for three or four, three or four minutes and I'll reintroduce you when we come back. Okay. of God, plural. They weren't talking about Jesus coming down. No, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I'm Steve Crawford, host of Factor Theory Live. Join me every Sunday night from 10 p.m. till midnight Eastern Standard Time on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Check it out. Enter into a world unseen on Raven Star's Witching Hour. You will encounter eclectic topics from the realm of spirit brought into our matrix of truth. With your host, the Solaris Blue Raven, Solaris will bring you an array of unique guests covering topics from ghostly spirits to amazing anomalies, covert technology, UFOs, and shadowy global events. And that's right here at Revolution Radio FreedomSlips.com, Saturdays, midnight till 2 a.m. Eastern Time. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. Let the magic rise. <laughs> Galactic Interstellar Council on Revolution Radio Studio A, Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern. Join us as we traverse the Starseed Paradigm. As expressed in the time-space continuum that we know as the divine expression of love and light. Integrating this conscious unity into the galactic paradigm. So welcome all, both terrestrial beings and galactic beings as one. So be it. You're listening to Revolution Radio.
is what they do, and we must fight back. You can torture us and bomb us. Fire is catching. And if we burn, you burn with us. Good evening. Are you awake yet? I hope. We've tried and we've tried for years and years to use passive resistance and loud voices to make a change. But time is over. Your governments around the world have no other goal than to decimate your entire existence at the hands of the bankers and the elites. The war is coming, and it's your choice to decide if you want to be a warrior or a victim. Denial is not a choice anymore. Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported radio station on the planet. Not giving up. Revolution Radio. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Okay, welcome back to... No, why am I, why am I feeding back? Let me turn my volume down a little bit. Right, that should be a bit better, I think, hopefully. So, welcome back to Free Association. Uh, this is the roundtable version of the show. So, uh, I've got I've got Joe with me, who's a, a friend of mine for about six years. And uh, we met at the Philosophical Society in Newcastle a good long while ago. Probably, I think it was, I think it was mid-summer. I think it was the 21st of, <clears throat> don't quote me on this, Joe, but I think it was the 21st of June. But don't ask me the year because I don't remember. Um, but I know it was midsummer because I tr- I went I went once and turned around and left again. And then I met you on the on the Saturday, I think, if I remember rightly. Right. Yes. Uh, happy to be introduced. Walk a little more and find water. Hi. Joe. Just mute mute yourself for a second, Joe, and I'll do a bit of talking. It's okay. I just <laughs> I just cleaned her face. <laughs> All right. Okay. That's fine. Then. No. So uh, we've been on the on the board at the New, at the Newcastle Philosophy Society for a few years, and then and then neither of us are on the board anymore. So it was an interesting process. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride the last five or six years for me. I'm sure it has been for everybody, more in various different ways, but uh, it's definitely been a roller coaster ride for me. 
Yeah, so we're, we were talking in the last hour about the uh, the distinction between mind and body and transhumanism, which is the, uh, the distinction between body and machine or mind and machine. So where where does the human stop and the machine start is the question in human in uh, transhumanism and the the mind body question where does the where does the mind begin and the and the and the body end is a question that's been around for about at least 500 years probably a lot more uh, yeah any thoughts joe yes um from um, the time that humans began to shape stones, I suppose, um, as uh, more or less uh, embodied in the story of Prometheus uh, stealing the fire and giving it to humans, technology has been, or machine, as you put it, has been at the forefront of what is called progress. In other words, humans have been able to shape or fashion technology and thereby uh, enhance their capabilities. And so the notion of progress is born, uh, lauded by many people who believe the, in progress, that we have been uh, moving forward. And indeed, in many ways, we have. The more nuanced understanding of our relationship with machines, as you put it, or with technology, is that it is a trade-off. In other words, we move forward on some levels, in some ways, which are uh, obvious and apparent and, and, and perhaps uh, make themselves available to most people. But as we move forward in terms of capabilities, we lose human um, attributes. So I'll give you examples that I just read somewhere. When uh, the, the first axe, stone axe, uh, was used to grind grains and thereby shortening the time of mastication, of chewing. So chimpanzees, so I'm told, chew for six hours. And humans, at least initially, originally, were able to reduce it to one hour. Nowadays, because food is so processed by technology, we need five minutes, I suppose. Some people can finish a sandwich in five minutes. And so we freed if you like, uh, all this time and energy that we used for chewing to uh, other things and thereby uh, allowed ourselves to move, uh, to develop 
there are many examples like that. Um, but as we now uh, connect with food via technology, we lost the intimate connection with food. I, I don't know if my example is clear enough. And maybe uh, there is a, a research piece that we are losing empathy because empathy is, is enhanced by face-to-face. And nowadays, we are connecting on smartphones via screens. And so it is said that as we leaped into the age of smartphones, we have left behind that, if you like, part of being human called empathy, that because of lack of practice, dwindles and dies, dies off. So the more humans become uh, technological, if you like, the more machine-like they become. What does that mean? It means that they become less human. And so one day we will all be machines. And the question of what is the relationship between machines and humans will be answered as always seems to be the case. They become one. Humans will be machines. In some ways, you could argue machines will acquire certain human, especially thinking or uh, computation or or problem solving or whatever, or or, uh, acquisition of language. In some ways, you could argue machines become like humans. But at any rate, the uh, answer to the question of relationship seems to always lead to, you know, that uh, uh, it's not a relationship. It is a process by which Uh, which Melanie Klein talked a lot about, you um, uh, swallow or internalize aspects of that or or the one you relate to until you become that. So the notion of, anyway, I, I don't want to run too far yet with this idea of relationship, merely to say that the answer to the relationship between humans and machines is simply that humans will become machines. Right, you said something interesting there though. Uh, So the the psychological process that's going on is a process of between people, of people getting to know each other and becoming each other to some extent. So you start to share the qualities of the other person in the relationship. Yes. What you're saying is the same thing happens with, with technology. You start to share the qualities of the technology because you're in a relationship with the technology. Yes. Is that what you're saying? That's the idea. You put it much better than me. Yes. All right, cool. Because that's that's essentially what what transhumanism is, isn't it? It's internalizing machine, internalizing technology. 
So it makes sense to me that, that it's an extension of the psychological process of relationship between people. I'd never thought of it like that, but that makes total sense to me. So then my resistance to, to having bits of technology put inside inside my skin or whatever, or implanted in my brain or whatever, is a resistance to relationship. Or is it a or is it a, just a, it's like a, a pushing away of, of the technology? So it's a pushing away of the relationship with the technology. Well, I said before, not yet, because it seems to me relationship deserves conceptualization. I think relationship is a concept that has not yet been looked into sufficiently. And, and of course, relationship can be so many things, any, any encounter, any identification, any standing side by side could count as relationship. But when we talk about relationship, I think we try, at least I believe so, we try to um, not uh, look at it simply as standing side by side, uh, nor uh, for one becoming the other. But a true encounter between two entities that are not lost in the process. Relationship is the idea, I suppose, uh, if, if we, if you look at machine in, in we, uh, and humans in which the machine is a machine and the human is human, or if you like between people, that the other, that the self or, 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 or the self is the self and, and, and remains the self and, and celebrates being itself. And the other is also allowed and, uh, to, to be itself. And if, if you like, that's the notion of pluralism and so on. But whilst it is an ideal, uh, I think most of us share in practice because of psychological reasons or social pressures, it is rarely the case. In other words, there are underlying processes by which um, either one has to give or both um, worst case scenario, both give into something else. In other words, people don't know how to relate. The idea of relationship is not as simple as people think. Yeah, I, I get that. It's uh, definitely not simple. Uh, it's the, but I'm, I'm interested in the the well, the obviously transhumanism is the idea of a merging of sorts of man and man and technology. So what you're saying is the the real relationship, the the genuine relationship, authentic relationship, would maintain the two as separate as well. So there's a there could be an internalization, but but it, there's an awareness of the separation as well. Is that is that what you were saying? Yeah, separation is just one aspect. Uh, perhaps more to the point is to be free 
and to be full uh, or to be yourself and to enter relationship without losing your freedom whatever that means everything requires unpicking a little bit and without losing who you are hold on a second yes No problem. I think uh, freedom is going to be a topic we return to and relationship will be a topic we return to over and over again. Uh, I know from experience that that happens <laughs> when Joel's around. So that's kind of how the that's how this show will work along the way at some point. Uh, but I'll. Yeah, I don't know exactly where the show is going to go. I'm just going to I'm going to let it happen. I'm going to stay out of the way as much as possible and just let it happen around the interactions and around the relationships that we build up in the groups uh, with the regular people. So Joe's a good man to have around for that. Yeah, I hope there is a paradox, if you like. I hope it's not me who brings relationship to the fore but relationship itself in other words if i understand correctly you want a round table you want a dialogue you want people who meet each other and explore one another and i share your vision it is not that i believe in relationship it's that i think relationship transcends belief if you like let's put it like that that one can no longer believe if you like in anything once you truly enter relationships with other people yeah you might need to unpack that a little bit Joel, because it's uh there's a lot lot of uh there's a lot of things in there that that need to be discovered i think Is there anything more you can say about that? Yes, I, I'm sorry. I, she, she came to me, my child, I'm sorry. Um, yes. Um, what, what happens when you get outside your comfort zone? What happens you once you get outside your echo chamber, outside your tribe? Uh, hold on a second. Okay, no props. Okay, so you're listening to uh, Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Uh, as I said before, it's a listener-supported station, so we rely on, on donations to keep the servers running. as two servers running more or less 24 hours a day, so it's, a, it's quite a big operation. All in all, 80 hosts, sometimes, well, there's between 80 and 90 hosts normally on the station, which means a wide variety of programs, and you'll find something. But if you've got if you've got $5 burning a hole in your pocket, come along to freedomslips.com, uh, look on the top on the navigation bar, and you'll find a donation tab. Just follow the links and uh, do what you can. We appreciate it. And it's a, it's a 
it's a good operation, so it's uh, it's worthy of being supported. This operation, it's a remarkable place. Okay, Joe. Yes, you, yes, uh, yes. You want to unpack? Well, um, I'm a psychologist. The basic idea is neurosis in psychology. That is, humans are work in progress, incomplete, unintegrated, split apart, barely holding on to their identities. They cling and create identity groups, uh, and they need other people to complete their own identity. <clears throat> That's the basic idea. So, why humans enter into relationship in order to be themselves, without which they can't. Now, that's a very interesting paradox that we need the other to be ourselves. People don't look at it like that. They look at themselves as already established. Not a work in progress, but a work that has progressed. They have grown up, they have become adults, they have found the profession, they have found uh, their place in life. Uh, so, on the face of it, they come as themselves, talk about themselves, take some interest in the other. Underneath that, that sort of appearance, underneath that, there is a very interesting process in which relationship ends up incorporating or harnessing individuals into ever bigger identity groups like uh, various sexual orientations, like various races, like various nations, like various um, uh, professions. And so it goes on and on and on and on. Why do they come together? Why do these entities emerge? Because an individual human, I said before, is not an identity in its own right. Problem. Now, I sort of am more aware of it, and I would like other people to be aware of it. So that relationship is not a process of um, the creation of groups in which individuals enter a deal or a trade-off. Uh, they gain, no doubt, something from the group, but essentially they give themselves to the group. In other words, their own identity is part of a group identity. I would like, and I'm sure everyone would like that, but people don't perhaps see uh, the process as I see it, is for people to be okay with themselves. 
and to accept that in the incompletion, in the uh, imperfection, in the quirks and foibles and failures and not being best in, in this or, 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 or even good enough in that, that nonetheless they are okay. And that they are who they are, what they are, and that is fine. And enter into relationships with their fellow human beings on that basis. Not that I need the other in order to complement my split and part and insufficient and uh, incomplete identity, but that I enter into a relationship for the relationship. That, that, that takes a lot of unpacking. I don't use other people. I um, recognize the other as full, the other recognizes me as full, and we don't tie the other to us as part of this process I identified before to forge our identity, but we free each other within the relationship. Relationship is a freeing uh, process. Now that's a paradox because people feel that relationship binds and they feel that relationship requires a commitment and it requires a, a promise or, or, or sustained promise that uh, is not broken and, and there are all sorts of concepts like betrayal and so on, such big concepts emerge. Now these are silly concepts, all, all of them, but they play uh, loud uh, in, in people's discourse. They, they, they feature large in people's discourse. And these concepts are irrelevant to relationship. And now the idea of relationship is sublime and it, it will require a lot if people are interested and we have to unpack it together. I'm not a, a person who can write a thesis about it or a book about it. But I just work with people. And so the notion of relationship emerges as at once a step that, uh, if you like, the step backwards, namely that it offers people recognition for what they are more so than the person can offer himself or herself. And at the same time, a process forward that enables people to relate to each other such that they can create something new. They not at the expense of themselves, but simply, if you like, um, that which comes together, not, not, not that one fulfills the missing bits of the other. There is no, there are no missing bits. People are fine as they are. They are complete. But, but that, that takes so much unpacking. And so what happens when two complete people meet is what offers us a, 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 
a clue as to what relationship is. It's not right. Yeah, Sorry, Joel. Uh, so the I'm just trying to I'm, I'm trying to get this into my own language so that I understand it a bit from my point of view. So you're saying I get I get two complete people meeting create create something extra. Is that what you're saying? The relationship is the extra thing that's created. Yes. So that's so that in effect that's. trying to get a picture in my head so when that extra thing is is created there's a there's a there's some kind of movement there's some kind of change so but that's not necessarily within it's it's in addition to is that what you say yes you know in philosophy there is the notion of the third and the third is the relationship. Most relationships, if people are honest, are to enhance oneself. And that's not, the, I mean, it's okay, but that's not what I mean. It's not that I enter into a relationship in order for me to uh, be more complete or, or, or for them to provide the skills I lack. It, it's okay. I'm, I'm not against it. But there is something more, dare I say, profound about relationship, which um, uh, is not a deal that you make. It's not a, 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 a trade, a trade-off that you make. I give you that, you give me the other and we become partners in crime or partners in business or partners in matrimony. But almost like a child, it is that when two people come together, I, I mean, I, as yet it's very abstract, I, I apologize for it, as yet it's not as clear, but you give birth. Every relationship is a baby, as it were. It's a process of generation. When two people come together, a third entity is born. It's, that, that, that will take a lot of uh, explanation. And it is precisely for that birth that people come together. Are you with me? I think so, yeah. So you're saying there's some kind of... Well, so you're saying that they... Are you saying that people are impelled? into the relationship, there's some kind of subconscious drive, pushes people into relationship because there has to be a birth? Uh, yes, I say that far from people needing, people are overflowing. Far from being deficient, we have excess. Far from being incomplete, we are spilling over. We are overcomplete. We don't know it. And that excess or extra that we each have meets the extra that another person have, has. And if you like, I'm only using it as an analogy, if you like, is they enter, it enters into a union 
that generate, it's very generative and it gives birth to, uh, it's creative. It uh, allows, first of all, to utilize uh, this excess and B, to generate new things. So the any relationship is then an opportunity to use that in us that we usually, I mean, there are exceptional people, artists and so on, but from my readings, they have always been very able to uh, enter deep relationships with one another. If not contemporaries, then they are very able to enter across time into uh, a full immersion in someone else. At any rate, the concept of relationship is the source of their creativity. And in the process, one discovers that one is not needy. That if you like to use it in people's language, one is more, it sounds a bit paradoxical, we need to give, we need to offload. We have far more to give than we need to receive. And that is what relationship enables us. Now, of course, we, we live in a, because of capitalism or whatever, in a world that encourages us to feel that we lack and that promises to fulfill all our desires. And it biases us towards being customers or consumers is a, is a better word. Whereas, as I said, it, 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 um, it's, it's a brainwash that takes us away from ourselves and no wonder it results in unhappiness. A world in which we would be encouraged to give, I don't mean like you ask us to donate for your station. Uh, I don't mean necessarily financially, but you know, to, to recognize and to value what we have to give for, as, as you do instinctively, as perhaps every uh, one who convenes a forum of debate uh, does instinctively, you offer people an opportunity to share with others that which they have got, their process of thinking, their creativity, and you, you give time and space and attention and, and opportunity uh, for that to come through. That, in my opinion, should be extended to every human being, including audiences. Um, but anyway, if, I'm, if I talk too much, tell me off, Dennis. No, you're, you're fine, Joel. You're absolutely fine. Uh, all of these things are... Uh, concepts that take a little bit of, of work to get to the bottom of so uh, we'll get we'll get there as we go through and I'm sure as people join and, and get used to everybody gets used to everybody else so the whole the whole process will change slightly but we'll we'll work through it and work our way towards whatever it is that we're doing <laughs> we'll just do whatever it is we're doing and then work it out afterwards Yes, you are wonderful like that. You have patience, you give time, you believe in process, you uh, 
um, invite people uh, to, to fully take part. It's uh, it, it is the foundation of 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 that of people um, you know entering relationships by being prepared to share whatever is in them with other people. Um, and you are right, it takes time. People need to get to know, people need to trust, people need to relax, people need to uh, get feedback. And so to, to uh, be able to communicate uh, in a way that is conducive, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of combination of the the round table, as you say, the round table and the audience. Where does the round table? This is the question. Where does something end and something else begin? Where does the round table end and the audience begin? Because I get feedback from the chat room all the time. I rely on feedback from the chat room to know what's going on and is is what I'm doing working technically, and and from ideas and and all the rest of it. So there's always an there's always that interaction. There's always that that combination of the two. Without without the chat room and without the the feedback from the chat room, I'll be doing this blind. So it would be it would be much more difficult to negotiate. It would be much more difficult to to navigate without that feedback. So that's a, that's an an intimate part of the show, even though it's not. It's not explicit all the time. It's always like every every ten minutes, I'll check to see what's going on, or I'll or I'll ask a question and get feedback if I need if I need to have that just to make sure that that things are working technically. Yes, I mean I fully go along with that. I'll take it further. In ancient Greece, the theater was was ubiquitous was all over the place. And the audience uh, was vital uh, to this process. So much so that Aristotle in his um, inquiry into this phenomenon of theater tries to find out what is the vital, because philosophers always go for the vital, the most important component of the show. Is it the actor? Is it the director? In, in, in modern terminology, is it, is it the producer? Is it special effects? And he concludes it's the audience. Uh, not only as feedback, but as generator, which is a concept that to this day eludes most people because they feel what the show, if you like, or what's on stage inspires us. I mean, you could look at it as to and fro, um, two-way sort of process, but you could look at it more precise as we, inspire the show. We, the audience, I mean, I always place myself with the audience. Why? Why do we, what is inspiration? Inspiration is excess. What is culture? What is literature? What is philosophy? It's excess. Uh, 
we human beings have uh, so much more than our day to day. We have dreams, we have memory, we have expectations, we have imagination. We generate within our head non-stop as the world of dream famously described by Freud attests to. But on a larger scale, on a, on a big social scale, it manifests itself in culture. And if you like, in shows, in, in theater, in, in spectre, whatever the word is, which is the result of the collective excess of the audience. And uh, the idea of audience is, is fascinating to me. Uh, and yes, of course, uh, I, I, I applaud any uh, interactivity and any feedback. And, and I take your word for it, that this station in particular. But I would like to see it extended further. I would like uh, every, I don't know, maybe it's a big, uh, big idea, uh, for all artists to recognize themselves as children, for all performers, for all show, the whole show business, as mere entertainment of the provided by that, by the, by the fledgling, by the, what's the word, by the, by, by that which is young and just hatched and being, if you like, the product of those who were there to, who awaited it and who witnessed it. Because what's missing is the self-awareness of audiences. They don't acknowledge, they don't realize, they are reduced to uh, clapping and they are worked up by all sorts of clever people. You now clap and you now don't clap. And you uh, audiences need to realize in the show and then take it back home. They need to discover themselves, so if you like, their excess, and take it home, not uh, only leave it uh, at the place of the show or the theater, but go home and grow as a result of their experience, and thereby, if you like, change their lives or change, change their self-esteem. Um, so the idea for the audience uh, pertinent to this show and, and any show is, is vital. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna slightly rephrase that because I'm I'm understanding it in my way rather than your way. So uh, what I think what I think you're saying, I could be wrong, is that the the audience sees itself reflected in the in the show. And the the analysis afterwards, the conversation afterwards, reveals that part of the person that was in the audience that's in the show. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? It is, if you like, subconscious. I don't think that audiences have the confidence to say, 
even to see the, as you put it, to see themselves reflected in the show, but certainly not to look at themselves as the authors of the show. They would still see themselves as spectators or audience. Uh, but yes, deep down, deep down, the reason why people identify so when they do or when they get really ecstatic or when they feel something so significant took place is because more of themselves got enacted on stage. When I say of themselves, I repeat this notion of excess. Okay, so so in in effect, the 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 writer, the author of the show, and the producer, and the director, and the the uh, the people who design the scenery and everything is standing in for the audience in the in that prior process. Yes. So they're representing the subconscious of the of the audience, maybe. Yes, they distill energy. They are very perceptive, observant, and hardworking, and uh, they draw on materials, and as I said, they distill or crystallize it into their particular contribution to the show, respective contribution. Uh, But essentially, they take it from us. In other words, there is so much in us, and people don't uh, I mean, they know, they feel it, it gets out into all sorts of feelings and so on. And often nowadays it becomes depression or becomes bad feelings or whatever. But essentially at core is just. Oh, that's another phone call, I think. So I'm. Um... Yeah, we're we're kind of we're we're working through relationship today. We're working through the relationship between man and machine, the re- relationship between mind and body, the relationship between audience and performers, or audience and theatrical performance. And it, the conclusion, really, the con- well, the the idea that Joel's putting forward is that. Is that the audience is part of the show, and the, by extension, the machine is part of man, and man is part of machine, whilst retaining their individuality. So you can be in the relationship as an individual and retain your individuality, but the, the extra is that the relationship is an extra thing that that happens when when the audience and the and the show come together. Yes, I would tilt it. Sorry, there was a phone call. I would tilt it in favor of the audience. It's not just the two of them. It's essentially the audience. Right. So the the show emerges from the audience, is what you're saying. Yeah, it, it's it, it is its child. Yes. Right. Okay. That, that kind of makes sense from from what you've said. If, if for example, there's there's a hundred people in the audience, it produces one type of show, and if there's five thousand people in an audience, it produce, produces another type of show. 
Yes. So that kind of makes sense because it will be it will be reflecting a different thing if if we're if if we're using the analogy of the subconscious or whatever. If there's something buried in those people that that needs to be shown to those people or can be shown to those people in a in the the creation of a show or performance, it will be different in in five people than it is in a hundred people. The number will be would make a difference to that, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Numbers, numbers uh, translate into uh, you know a lot into uh, energy, into variation of ideas. Yes, the more the merrier. So here's here's the thing. I was watching a video from a an interview with a with a clinical psychologist who's in Belgium, and he was talking about <clears throat> this is. This will probably take us to the end of the show, I would imagine. He was talking about mass formation, which is not necessarily a new concept to me, but I've never heard it expressed like this. He was talking about um, how people responded to the to the pandemic by by grouping together, and that, to some extent, we could, you could use the analogy of theatre for that, really, couldn't you? It's like there's a People are responding to something. They're responding to a potential threat, which, in in essence, is is a is a theatrical thing. It's a it's something that engages you. It's something that you need to think about. It's something that that you've got a relationship with. You've got a relationship with with the pandemic, or is that stretching it too far? No, <laughs> I think I understand what these guys saying, but I would like to emphasize something rather difficult for people. Um, what we normally consider a threat is our own creation. In other words, the vi virus is our child. We, yeah, ha I get that. we have originated the pandemic, I mean, not, not in a technical sense. It came from a lab or it came from a bat or, or whatever, not in that sense. But we recognize, at least after the event, we come to see it deep down as one of the products of our imagination. We thought, after all, there are so many books about pandemics and plague. And so it's not that difficult then to relate to it once it becomes a mass phenomenon like uh, COVID uh, as yet another child of our, if you like, brainchild, child of our imaginations. Now that strikes me, if I'm right, that it's more, more of a threat than a threat. In other words, Instead of people saying, wow, it's my child. And therefore developing a relationship as one would, I hope, with one's child. They convert it into a threat, into an enemy, into an intrusion, into an alien, into something that needs to be defeated. And I understand on the face of it, obviously, we need to protect ourselves. Obviously, it can kill. Obviously, we need to 
you know, vaccinate or, or, or take whatever measures are necessary. That, that, that's not the level at which I'm talking about. That's the level of administration or hygiene or, or logistics or maintenance or whatever. And that level is necessary. But there is an extra level that always gave, has always been the, the wellspring of culture. At that level of imagination, I suggest we treat it as uh, we have generated the virus. And we yeah, I agree with that completely, in all honesty, uh, <laughs> which probably doesn't surprise you that much. But uh, I, see it as a, I see it as an expression of, of a subconscious paranoia. To some extent, maybe... I don't know. There's lot because there's lots of paranoid people around. There's lots of people who are frightened of things, and it never gets it doesn't get expressed. It's sitting there underneath, and colours how people look at the world, and and interferes with how people uh, respond to the world to some extent. So the the idea of a of a physical virus is a physical is a physical manifestation of that fear. That's kind of how I look at it, and uh, it, it's interesting because it makes it much more visible. It makes it it makes it obvious where people are, when people are frightened because you can see it walking down the street in, a, in the middle of a pandemic. And I, yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I stretch these things a little bit, and I know you you'll stretch things quite far to to make the point, Joel. So. Uh, yeah. we've got about we've got about three minutes. Is there anything else you want to want to add to that? Uh, I look forward to people joining the roundtable so that it becomes a conversation, which uh, based on relationship that will generate uh, as many children as we can all generate together, or, or mind children, or conversation children. Uh, what what would I just to take what you say? Even the paranoia is already something that got generated out of excess. Why do people become paranoid? Because there are aspects of their minds that are not lived. And so they go into fear and anxiety and paranoia, if you like. And the purpose of life is to reconvert or, or, or if you like, interpret or, or own all the things that we generate as our own and as essentially part of life, not something to be fought against, but something to be reincorporated and accepted as part of ourselves. Okay, that kind of kind of makes sense to me. So I'm just gonna I'm do do a wrap up now because we're 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 coming to the end of the show. So just to let people know it's a, it's gonna be a weekly show. Uh, the way that I've got this in my head, it'll be it'll be ten shows until Christmas, and we'll take a break at Christmas, and uh, I'll see I'll see how it's going and see 
see what needs to be tweaked, if anything needs to be tweaked or whatever. But I'm just going to let it flow. Ultimately, it's a, it's a product of whoever shows up. And it's a it's an emergent property of the people who who show up here. So that's kind of how I'm approaching it. It means I've got to do slightly less work as well. So that's always a good thing. Um, but yeah, we'll be uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, be, there'll be more people next week because people won't be on holiday or doing other things. They'll have had a bit more notice. So hopefully there'll be two or three other people here, and we'll have another conversation. But thanks for coming, Joel. I appreciate it. Thanks for giving us your time. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. See you next week. Brian Rue show on Revolution Radio, Eastern Standard Time, every Tuesday night from 6 to 8. And we talk about the four most vital things, in my view, affecting all of humanity. Number one is UFOs and aliens and their agenda for the advancement of humanity. Number two is the Jewish establishment's control over all aspects of human civilization. Number three, the truth about Adolf Hitler, how he was the opposite of what we've been told. Number four is Advanced Ancient Global Civilizations. Join me on The Brian Rue Show, Tuesday nights from 6 to 8 on Studio B on Revolution Radio. This is Thomas, a.k.a. a mad painter. I'd like you to join me Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Open Canvas. Don't forget to bring an open mind. Yes, folks, that's right. Bring an open mind to an open canvas. Again, that is Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern. UFOs to government corruption. This is Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are 